Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to an extra edition of the SITREP podcast from BFBS. Winning wars is about understanding and following basic principles. Although fiendishly complex, wars are almost always lost due to the same simple ideas being misapplied or ignored. Not my theory, but that of former army officer Dr. Mike Martin, opening his new book, How to Fight a War. A bold title, you might think. It's had some significant backing, however. The head of the army, General Sir Patrick Sanders, has called it essential reading for every soldier, officer and general. We've given it to one former soldier to get his verdict. But before we hear that, let's talk to the author, Dr. Mike Martin. Mike, really good to speak to you. Hey, how are you doing? Hiya. I'm good, thanks. So 244 pages. Can you mm. sum it up for us in a few sentences? What are those basic principles, those simple ideas that are, that are key to fighting a war? Mm. Uh, so war is not about technology. It's about humans. And because of that, you really need to think about strategy. Um, you need to think about logistics, morale and training. Those are the, If you get those four things right then you can start thinking about technology. And if you don't get those four things right, there's no point in having the shiniest ship, the flashiest tank, the fastest aircraft. It won't matter. And you say yourself, the core nature of war hasn't changed since the first days of humans. So if the principles are as old as time, what are you trying to achieve with the book? Mm. Well, this is, this, is what, this is why we go on battlefield tours, right? Because we can learn from battles that were 2,000 years old. Um, what I'm trying to achieve is it, it, it became quite obvious, particularly with the war in Ukraine, but actually if you think about it, Iraq and Afghanistan as well, we're not actually very good at fighting wars. We often start them without clear aims or a clear strategy and more wars, if you look back through history, more wars are either failures or come to inconclusive draws than are won, right? And and war is about settling geopolitical questions. So by winning, I mean they settle those those geopolitical questions. And it's not just the public that don't know how to fight wars. You wouldn't expect them to, but we would expect generals, politicians, dictators, kings, you know, leaders of countries, commanders in chief. We'd expect them to know to fight how to how to fight wars, and mm. it, they don't. So the book sets out in really clear terms. Uh, in the second person, so speaking to the Commander-in-Chief, this is what you need to do. First, you need to sort out your strategy. Here is how you sort out the strategy, and so on and so forth. She's in very clear language, explaining it bit by bit by bit. And you also say psychology is absolutely central. How mm. so? Well, strategy, if you think about it, and this is the reason why it hasn't changed since we were fighting in caves, um, is a competition between two brains, right? And those brains, human brains, you know, evolved on the African savanna, you know, 50,000 years ago. And, and that's why strategy is the same then as it is now. And that's why war is about psychology. Well, what we're trying to do is affect the psychology of your opponent, you know, the opposing commander in chief, if you're a leader of a country, or, you know, if you're a platoon commander, or even a corporal, a section commander, you're trying to outthink your opponent at the level that you're fighting. And so that's why psychology is absolutely key. And all of these other things, all of this technology, the weapons, um, uh, the ability to do you know, information operations, cyber operations, all that stuff, all of that is geared towards this central aim, which is affecting your opponent's psychology. 
Let's bring in BFPS reporter James Wharton, who served 10 years as a soldier in the Household Cavalry. Um, James, you fought in a war in Iraq in 2007. So what did you make of the book? Well, I found the book really refreshing to take a look at some of these big questions of war, some of these big matters that commanders and chiefs have to deal have to deal with and answer. I found it really refreshing to look at that from the top down, as opposed to the bottom up, which is where I spent my time in the army. So for me, that was that was a big draw to the book. I, I really I really enjoyed having that opportunity. Mm, and James, essential to the book is a theory that war is an extension of politics. There's a really powerful sentence in the opening that says lethal violence is simply communication that your adversary cannot ignore. Is that the kind of concept that ever occurred to you when you were in Iraq? Certainly not in those terms. The big picture, Iraq beginning in 2003 and then it changing from a hearts and minds to an insurgency was certainly something uh, me and my colleagues were aware of. But that was about it in terms of our mm. understanding. So um, I've certainly not heard it in those terms. I thought it was a wonderful turn of phrase. And I know um, Mike returns to, to that point uh, a couple of times through the book. It just reminds the reader that, you know, don't forget, this is a conversation. War is a conversation. And Mike, how much do you think the ordinary soldier really needs to understand the kind of principles that you set out in your book? I, I think everyone from private soldier all the way up to general needs to understand this because we talk about the strategic corporal right well that's understanding that everything that everyone does is part of this conversation of war right but in war we're using violence as a method of communication it's what we do when we've when politics has failed and we can no longer talk about our problems we tend to settle them uh, with violence in wars so let me give you an example you know you're a, a lance corporal and you've got a fire team and you've been given you know orders to, to storm a trench right well, there are probably a few ways you can go about that. And the tools you have at your disposal are largely violent ones. But you could kill your enemy. You could force them to surrender. You could get them to run away. And all of the, you know, the violence that you have at your disposal, and perhaps you can call on other things like artillery, artillery or whatever, these are ways of communicating your desire for the enemy to vacate that trench. You're not fussed whether you kill them, they surrender, or they run away. But you're able to communicate with them and perhaps force them to do what you want them to do. I mean, presumably these are things that, that, that should happen instinctively, not something you should th be thinking about. Absolutely. Studying war, training for war is both uh, practice and training, which gives you experience. And it's also formal, you know, study and learning. And, and you dip, you know, throughout your career in the armed forces, you do a bit of one and then you do a bit of the other and then maybe you go on operations and you do some more book learning. And that's very deliberate because... You learn these concepts and you understand them and you think, oh, that's very interesting. And then when you go on exercise or you go on an operation, you then you then start to see those principles put into practice. And then it all comes together on operations. And so that's why in an army, you generally tend to have book study and then training and experience. And they all come together. Well, let's look at the reasons you argue leaders lose wars. Three fallacies, you say, overconfident, being bewitched by technology and misunderstanding the enemy. Can it really be that simple? Well, it's simple in the, in the way that you've just read it to me like that. But uh, each of those things is really, really, really complicated. So let's let's take them, right? Overconfidence. Mm. Well, as you know, all of your listeners will know, Putin, right, has massively... Uh, overjudged the Russian armed forces' ability 
um, in uh, uh, Ukraine. They've performed particularly poorly. And as a dictator, he's really prone to overconfidence because he's had 20 years, not a democracy where everyone's telling you that you're wrong. In a dictatorship, everyone's going, yes, boss, you're doing a really good job. So he's really prone to overconfidence. And uh, even more so than other leaders, but lots of leaders, you know, Tony Blair in Iraq in 2003 was arguably very, very overconfident about what would happen post-invasion and so on and so forth. So that's a very, very common cognitive bias that you think, oh, well, that's simple. Just don't be overconfident. But we're humans and war is about psychology and it's really hard to escape these cognitive biases. Mm. Te te technology is another one. You know, we talk about cyber warfare now. Boris Johnson, three months before, when he was a prime minister, three months before the Ukraine war, said the days of tank wars on the European planes are over. It's all about computers and all these sorts of gizmos now. In the 1920s, we did it with air power. And the reason we're bewitched by technology is because people come along and say, buy this technology, it's cheaper than deploying land forces and we can achieve the same results. So if you're a politician with budgets under pressure, that's very, very bewitching. And you say, uh, for example, that overconfidence from the US and the UK led to chaos in Iraq in 2003. Well, I think it did. I, th I think that the initial warfighting phase was executed very competently. It's broadly accepted that there was absolutely no plan for what happened once the Iraqi armed forces had surrendered and the government had changed. There was just no plan and they were making it up on the hoof. And James, um, you were in Iraq four years after the invasion in 2003. At the time, what was your experience of, of overconfidence or not? And do you feel those leading with the, with the benefit of hindsight were overconfident? I think there's a difference between the local commanders on the ground who, who I had immediate access to, and, and, and they were the only people in terms of leadership I had access to, and those strategically placed much higher up, away from... Um, the battle zone, if you like, um, in headquarters or, or, or even in another country, which, which you know, some commanders are. I, I do think there's a difference between those two groups. And, and certainly nine times out of ten, the commanders I was dealing with on the ground, my section commander, troop leader, squadron leader, they, they were always really on it. And I, and I had the utmost confidence. But, you know, I was in Maizan Desert for most of the summer of 2007 and we were achieving very little. And it does start to go around the ranks. You do hear people talking about, you know, what are we actually doing here? What is our purpose? What are we trying to achieve? And, and I think when that happens, and Mike goes into a bit of this in his book, when um, that sort of um, culture begins to emerge, you know, you can have problems and it can start to have a, a, an effect on soldiers' morale, for example. Yeah, and on that subject of morale, Mike, um, you portray it as more important than equi equipment or technology. Confidence inspires morale, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it's morale is not not being happy. It, it's the glue that binds these teams together. And when you come under fire and you start taking casualties, or you haven't slept for three days, that's the morale that keeps your unit going. And if you think about the British Army's doctrine of manoeuvre warfare. The aim is to shatter the enemy's cohesion and will to survive. And that's all about destroying their morale so that their units fall apart, destroying the enemy's morale so their units fall apart. So how much, how much of a factor do you think morale is in survival in a war situation? I mean, I suppose it's difficult to put a percentage on it, but how much of a difference does it really make, do you think? If we're talking about small unit um, uh, tactics, I think morale is probably the most important thing that determines whether a unit will survive or not, simply because uh, units with good morale remain cohesive 
and they keep going and they keep following orders when other units might fragment or give up. Yeah, I mean, I joined Mike. For me, it was the soldiers around me. You know, I think back to that time in the desert. You know, on some occasions we were approaching 20, 21 days out on patrol, living off our vehicles, nowhere near showers or anything else like that. Um, and, and I think when you get to that stage, morale really matters. And, and that's when you really depend on your colleagues, on your local commanders. You're so far removed from the big decisions, you're actually just spending day to day trying to survive. And, 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 and that's when the colleagues came in. It does sound like morale was a bit low at times then, James. Yeah, it can be. I mean, it was very hot, obviously, in the desert, and we were there in the peak of the summer. And, and as I mentioned a minute ago, there were definitely occasions when we were really struggling to understand what our purpose was. And, and I would today, you know, I'm in my late 30s now, and I spend a lot of time looking at the military in, critical, in, in a critical sense. I would today fault the higher, the higher up leadership for, for not sort of maintaining a, a good communication on what it was we were trying to achieve. I, I wouldn't say morale was, was ever rock bottom, but, you know, there were, certain, there were definitely individuals who were very close to, to losing their morale. And, you know, it would be then a team, a section of soldiers who would, who would then take on the responsibility of keeping people in, in the right place um, psychologically. I think it's a really great point from James that on the ground, you guys were thinking, what is the purpose? Why are we here? And that exactly speaks to this idea of and how strategy and morale and all that link together. We didn't really have an idea at the higher up levels about what we were doing in Iraq post the initial invasion. And that's why, you know, that was felt by you guys on the ground. You know, you, mm. there was no direction from the senior leadership about the purpose because they themselves didn't know what the purpose was. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think uh, there, are, there are a number of stages through Mike's book where I I really thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if some of the decision makers away from the battle group that I was part of um, took the time to, to read or reread and remind themselves about? Because, you know, on the ground, as Mike says, and I know in other parts of his book, he talks about moving from unit to unit in Afghanistan and, and, and seeing the consequences of poor leadership actually on the ground. It, it, it did remind me, it did, it did make me wonder perhaps whether um, commanders should spend a little bit more time thinking about what purpose what our purpose, what the what the uh, fighting group's purpose might be on the ground and how best to communicate that to the individuals who are conducting that so work. In, in that light, James, I mean, if, for example, um, they didn't have an idea what the purpose was, do you think the soldiers on the ground should have been given some kind of reason just to give them direction, even if it wasn't perhaps the correct reason and they didn't have no, just give them a reason? I think um, if I pay some credit to a former troop leader of mine, there was a, a very hot, sunny afternoon in the desert where we couldn't do anything because it was too, too, too warm to, to do anything. And, and he got us in a circle, actually, and he just asked the question, you know, what is it? What, what do you know about the geopolitical situation on the ground in this region right now? And most of us didn't know the difference between the Sunnis and the Shiites, which was very crucial to that situation in 2007 in Iraq and, and, he, and, he, and he just measured where we were in our in our education in terms of understanding the geopolitics of Iraq at that time and it was really insightful because it turns out none of us knew what was going on really and he took it upon himself to then explain to us just in sort of simple terms if you like what it mm. was that was going on and how we fitted in and I really admired him for doing that. Mike I guess that's the kind of thing that you might have heard several times in your career. Yeah, it's excellent leadership. Um, it, it, it really does make the difference. Small unit leadership 
um, really, really does make the difference to outcomes in war. Obviously, knowing why you're there, knowing what the reason is for your deployment, crucial, and, and being able to see the big picture, as you <coughs> just said, um, James, is so helpful. What about equipment, though? Because that must be very fundamental as well. Well, I mean, from my, from my perspective, equipment in Iraq was an ongoing uh, headache. To be fair, we were we were so we were quite far away from the the main base. We were in Maizan, which was a sort of forty five minute helicopter journey. So anything we needed, we we had to depend on for airdrop. And and we were also getting by in the desert with old kit. You know, I was a CVRT driver. You know, these vehicles were introduced in the in the nineteen seventies, and uh, and they certainly weren't designed for the the desert of, of Iraq. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed Mike's point at the beginning. He says he's written the book in order of precedence of the things that commanders should, should get right to fight a war. And logistics is the second, the second most important thing. Uh, and, I, and I would completely agree. And, but I, I suppose, Mike, you understand a soldier, I'm always going to complain that I haven't got the right yeah, fit or, yeah, or yeah, enough of it. don't you know? fit, yeah. <laughs> Indeed, quite. Um, I, I, think, I think what it is, Kate, is that you can if you get your strategy your logistics and your morale and your training right then you can you can get by with perhaps not the newest equipment right but if you have the newest shiniest equipment but you haven't sorted out your strategy logistics morale and training you're not going to win so i guess that's how i would i would i would compare the two Mm. And Mike, we shouldn't ignore the fact that you served in Helmand province in Afghanistan. Mm. What lessons would you like your leaders to have taken from this book? <laughs> um, <laughs> understand the war that you're trying to fight. It's, it's that simple. Um, I, I was a political officer in Afghanistan. I spoke fluent Pushtu. Uh, in fact, I was the first. I invented that job for the for the British military. I was the first one. And that job was born out of the fact that we really didn't know what we were doing. We had great intelligence, if you like, on the Taliban or people who were trying to kill us so we could find roadside bombs and all the rest of it quite successfully. But we had really very poor understanding of the tribal politics, the, the way the drugs trade worked, all that stuff, land ownership, all these things that actually shaped the conflict in the south um it's really interesting you say that about that sorry to interrupt but it's really interesting when you say that you had very poor understanding of, of the mm. situation the tribal mm. politics etc etc on the ground how did that feel when you were actually there did you feel like you're out of your depth um uh, it felt well because you always you know the way the human brain works is you piece together a story right of what's going on and what i found was that um, because, you know, I, I spent two years in Helmand, spread over four years, and so I spent a lot of time there in a concentrated period of time. And each time I went back, and, you know, I then further wrote my PhD on Helmand, each time I went back, I felt like I was peeling the layers off an onion. So I, mm. I felt like I had a good understanding. And then I'd have another conversation and go, oh, okay, that's, it. you know, <laughs> another bit of the jig, you know, and then I'd sort of go and have another, and then another bit of the jigsaw would fall into place. And And what became clear was that, um, I probably knew, uh, it's probably best thing to capture, I was, I was chatting to this, this, this tribal elder who I'd known for, for, for years and, you know, I mean, we weren't friends. I'm sure he would have killed me if he'd had the chance. But I, I said, um, you know, we were talking about how the Brits and the Americans didn't really know what they were doing. And I said, yeah, I know that there's some of us who speak Pushtu and our job is to understand stuff. So maybe we understand, like, 
five percent or something and he looked at me and smiled and went mike sub uh you probably understand less than one percent of what's going on wow <laughs> which i thought and i thought yeah he's right he's right and i, I was i was sort of like yeah i understand five percent and i was downplaying it thinking he'd go no no, no you've got ten percent mike or something but he was like and, you know he said it kindly but but it really you know we we didn't have a clue and James, um, Mike says this book is intended as a reference guide for commanders and chief. The chief of the general staff says it should be read by every soldier, officer and general. Do you think you would have done things differently if you'd read the book? Uh, if I'm honest, I think back to that 20-year-old me when I was a tank driver, essentially, in a household cavalry. And I was responsible for all of that stuff, the, main, the maintenance of the vehicle. And I was responsible for my own tactical situational awareness. And then I was just trying to keep myself alive and all these sort of things. <laughs> I think, if I'm honest, to put some of the big questions that the book asks of commanders onto, onto my young shoulders, I'm not entirely sure I would have had the capacity to deal with it. I, I do slightly disagree with General Sanders. Don't tell him I said that. On, on the, um, <laughs> it's recorded, like, mate. You never know, he might, he might be listening. <laughs> goodness, goodness me. Um, yeah, I do, I, I, I do slightly disagree with him on, on, on the idea that, you know, every potential recruit should read this. I, I love this book, um, and I think it's going to do really well in two areas. One, anybody who's thinking of, of a career in the army in a, in a position of command. So everybody in Sanders should have this book on their shelves. Everybody who's doing well at their A-levels and are just thinking about perhaps going into the army via Sanders, I think they should read the book too. I'm not entirely sure people who are just about to go to Purbright or are in the middle of their army foundation college training necessarily need to read it. But the other group of people, and this is where I put myself, I really enjoyed the idea of putting myself into the position of a commander in chief and just wargaming my way through an imaginary conflict as I went through the chapters of Mike's book. I found that really entertaining. Um, and, and I think that's another great um, attribute to this to the situation Mike creates at the beginning of his book. What lessons uh, do you think your leaders should have known at the time? Is it, have you picked up on anything that they should have focused on when, you, when you've seen the points have been put forward by Mike? Yeah, Mike concludes the book, not to spoil anything, but Mike concludes the book of a chapter called How to End a War. And um, now with the benefit of hindsight, as I said, um, perhaps it's too much to expect our political leaders to read that chapter at least, you know, how to how to get us out of wars once we're in them. Um, mm. you know, any any future Tony Blair's listening perhaps might benefit from, from skipping to the end of Mike's book and just reading that last chapter. There's a sentence earlier on in the book that Mike writes that really struck me, and it was along the lines of, and correct me if I get this wrong, Mike, but it was, if you're going to settle for peace with questions unanswered, it might be better to just carry on fighting the war. And that really struck me. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember the exact words, but yeah, it's it's the idea that, um, you know, because war is about settling big geopolitical questions, right? The Ukraine war is not about Ukraine. It's about deciding where the eastern border of Europe is, you know, the border between Europe and Russia. And if we decide that we're going to settle that war because we don't, want the killing to continue and you know for lots of noble reasons right we we, mm. you know, we tend to end wars for all sorts of noble reasons but the problem is if you don't settle it conclusively then you're just in five years time you're going to be fighting another war and the most obvious example of that is the second world war the seeds of the second world war were sown in the peace settlement at the end of the first world war and so sometimes it is as terrible as it sounds it's better to fight on and conclusively settle that question 
Listen, uh, Mike, we're going to talk a bit more about ply- applying this book to wars and defence now. Um, James, thank you very much for your time. So, so Mike, um, if we do apply this to the situation in Ukraine at the moment, and applying your book to, to each side, Russia and Ukraine, mm-hmm. how do you think they are doing in the way they're conducting themselves in this war? Mm-hmm. You can actually use the, the, the eight chapters as a kind of scorecard. So, you know, strategy, the Russians... Had a pretty poor strategy because of overconfidence. You know they were going to overthrow the government, and then they, you know, settled for just the Donbass. And, and you can always tell when a side's got a poor strategy if they keep changing their aims, like we did in Iraq and Afghanistan all the time. Um, whereas the Ukrainians have had a very clear strategy, which is the eviction of, of Russian forces uh, from Ukrainian territory with you know resources and a bit of a plan. And they've already demonstrated that they can do that in three areas in Ukraine. Um, morale: the Ukrainians are fighting on their own turf to defend their homeland their morale is sky high the russians by comparison have got very poor morale they've had to recruit mercenaries um they've got a kind of poorly trained conscript army and then logistics um so in big picture terms obviously ukraine is being supplied by the rich nations of the world but also it's it's battlefield logistics seem to be quite robust like its troops seem to get most of what they need i mean nothing's perfect but they seem Mm. to get most of what they need. In comparison, and particularly they're able to do mobile logistics, so they're able to supply forces on the move, which is obviously critical in manoeuvre warfare. The Russians, by contrast, I think we all remember at the beginning of the war, these long columns of armoured vehicles and supply vehicles that just got ambushed. Their battlefield logistics hasn't worked particularly well. It's very dependent on railroads, which the Ukrainians have been deliberately targeting with um, rocket artillery. The Russians are also unable, most critically, to do logistics at pace. So if you're moving an armoured force, you need to be able to get logistics to it. And that's, that's really complicated. And the Russians haven't really demonstrated an ability to do that yet. So just looking at those three or four key intangible factors that we've spoken about, um, you can score both sides. And I think on almost all of them, the Ukrainians are doing better than the Russians. So does that, using your scorecard then, does that mean you know what the outcome is going to be of this war? Hmm. Well, I, I, I've been uh, right from the beginning saying that I, sus- I think that Ukraine is going to win this war. Um, I think the way that they're going to do that is by having some sort of spectacular battlefield success this year that forces a change of leadership in Moscow. So that's the mechanism by which they're going to do it. Whether they'll be able to create those battlefield successes this year is a, is a question. And Mike, if we if we look now to Asia, you write in your book, because war and peace are a continuum, your war strategy starts when you are still at peace. Moreover, your strategy for war must be to avoid war at all costs. So how do we apply that to avoid war over Taiwan? Um, yeah, so you're talking about deterrence, really, aren't you? Which is that you signal to your enemy that the costs of them going to war are going to be so great uh, that uh, they decide that they don't want to go to war. And I think largely the way to do that in East Asia is is to do what the West and America in particular is generally very good at, which is building alliances. The great strength of the Western system is that we build alliances between countries that last for decades And I think it is that alliance system, particularly around the Quad, which is Australia, America, Japan and India, strengthening those alliance systems is a way of um, 
increasing the costs of China's designs on Taiwan so that they think that uh, maybe it's not worth it. Um, because you're basically calling their bluff, is what it is. And if we look at Britain's war strategy, um, you argue that the 2021 integrated review was based on the fallacy of technology solving our problems. But technology has to be part of the balance, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, but the, the you cannot substitute high-end technology for infantry. That's the key point that you have to remember when you're trying to think about what sort of armed forces do you want. You do need to do cyber and uh, you know, satellites and all the stuff that costs lots of money and is very, very important. You have to do that. But don't do that if it's at the cost of simple things like infantry and tanks and artillery. And the reason for that is because ultimately all wars end up being decided on the ground because that's where people live and wars are about people. And if you want to influence people, you need infantry. And if you're going to have infantry, then you need tanks and artillery and engineers and all the other ground forces. And if you need those, then you need an air force and you need navy. And if you need those, then you need cyber offensive capability and so on and so forth. But you build your military capability from the ground up, not by slimming out. You know, the integrated review cut 10,000 infantry at a time where geopolitical risk in the world has not been so high since the Second World War. It's complete madness. And right now, the technology everyone's talking about is AI. Do you think artificial intelligence will fundamentally change war or do you think you will still be able to apply the principles that you've set out? I, I think it's going to change war in one very fundamental way. So we spoke at the beginning of this conversation about how you know, strategy is psychological. It's about a competition between two brains that evolved, you know, 50,000 years ago. And so there, you know, war always has the same shape. It has attack, retreat, bluff. You know, it has all these, these psychological dynamics in it that we recognise, which is why we can do battlefield tours of ancient battles. Um, but if you've got artificial brains making decisions in war, so deciding who to kill, deciding where to move troops, then all of a sudden... It's not a competition between two evolved brains anymore, is it? It's a competition between two artificial brains. And that might mean that some of those dynamics, uh, attack, retreat, bluff, all the rest of it, maybe they don't look like that. We've got no idea what they do look like, but perhaps war, the nature of war, this thing that stayed the same for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, perhaps that will completely change into something else that we don't understand. Mike, I think you've got another book in you on this one. <laughs> Uh, just to conclude, Mike, um, this is your third book. The Ministry of Defence wanted to ban your first one, An Intimate mm. War, about Afghanistan. How does it feel to now have the Chief of General Staff saying this book is essential reading? Uh, do you know, uh, look, even, even when uh, the MOD and I had that disagreement uh, over my first book, I still... Uh, you know, even at the time, I was having lots of conversations with, with senior military officers and junior military officers, and, and they were all largely in support. The organisation is made up of the people inside it. And, you know, I run training courses for the British military, and I do lots of work with them still. And I, I, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I've always had a good uh, relationship with the British military. Really good to speak to you, Dr. Mike Martin. Thank you for your time. And also my thanks to James Wharton and How to Fight a War is out now. This is the draft.